following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, we're continuing on in our Sermon on the Mount series. It's interesting. People have been asking me, like, uh, are we done with it? Or... How, how many more do we have? And uh, clearly you, you've not been at ICC for very long because uh, um, we, we don't go quickly through series at all here. Um, so we're about halfway through with it. Um, so I'm going to preach from the Sermon on the Mount, but then we're actually starting next week, going to launch into our Advent series where we're going to look at some messages that point to the Christmas story. And then after the new year, we will resume with the Sermon on the Mount uh, for probably about like 10 more messages before we wrap it all up, okay? So we're not quite there yet. We still have a little bit to go. Uh, join with me in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get into the message. Lord, we want to be good students of your word, and as a result of that, to sit under your teaching and to know your wisdom. We see the limitations and the shortcomings of our own limited wisdom and all the ways that we think what's best for our lives and yet often it, it gets us into more trouble than help and uh, we know that you are one who is infinitely wise and uh, infinitely powerful to not only tell us what we ought to do but to empower us to live that changed life and so uh, do your work in us through the ministry of your word and the ministry of your spirit this morning we ask in Christ's name. I want to begin with a short clip from this comedy classic, Meet the Parents. I, I can't believe this movie is over 20 years old now. Uh, it makes me feel old, you know. But uh, it's, it's about this main character named Greg. I'm not going to say his last name, um, but you can look it up. And played by Ben Stiller, uh, who visits his girlfriend's parents' house um, for his girlfriend's sister's wedding. And the scene that I'm going to show you is just very brief, just a couple minutes, that's from the first night at his uh, girlfriend's parents' house uh, at the dinner table. So let's go ahead and just take a look at that uh, real briefly, and then we'll go on. It's just a, a lighthearted way, I think, but the truth is of how actually many of us feel about prayer. Uh, we, we understand that prayer is supposed to be um, a heartfelt and authentic communication with God, but especially when it comes to public prayer, I think it's unavoidable, this performative nature of this uh, religious act. And I'm sure all of us have felt like this at some time or another, when we're more distracted by our choice of words and how we sound in our prayer than actually making a connection with God himself. And the truth is, I think for just about all of us, we would feel far more nervous praying a congregational prayer than we would thanking God for our dinner, don't we? And the question is, why is that? Why, why is it that it feels like it's so much harder and so much more challenging to pray that prayer? Why are we so much more nervous? Well, in this passage we want to look at today in, Luke, in Matthew 6, Jesus warns us of this temptation 
to turn our acts of righteousness into acts that will be noticed by other people rather than to do those things out of our desire to please God. And so we're going to look at Matthew 6, verses 1 to 8, and then because we already sort of unpacked it, we're going to skip the Lord's Prayer and then go to verses 16 to 18. And it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before we ask him. And then this is where he launches into the Lord's Prayer. And then after that he says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In these words, Jesus is warning his disciples that there is a real danger of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And rather than doing them out of our love for God, we can be motivated out of this desire to look good in the eyes of others. And he applies this warning into three practices. Uh, giving to the poor, which is also known as almsgiving, prayer, and then fasting. And if you sort of know the historical context here, uh, it helps to understand this idea of announcing your giving with trumpets uh, seems a little ludicrous, uh, and it could very well just be a metaphor. But what historians also tell us is that in those days in Jerusalem, at times, trumpets would actually be blown in the temple. And they would do this to signal to all the citizens of the city that there was a particularly urgent need that they faced. And so what that trumpet blast would be is a call for the people of God to come to the temple and lay their offerings at the temple treasury. And so you could almost picture that sounding of the trumpets going out throughout the city emanating from the temple, and there will be some people that just drop everything and run to the temple, clearly in a way to be seen by others, to say, oh, let me be the first in line to give to God's work here. And so in essence, in reality, their giving is being with the sounding of trumpets so that everyone will notice what they're doing. You know that everyone knows where you're running to when you hear that trumpet blast. I also mentioned last week how there was this Jewish tradition of what are known as set prayers, set times of prayer, usually three times a day, when all observant Jews would drop whatever they're doing 
and pray to God. And in that time, what some people seemed to do was strategically place themselves in very public places so that when that hour of prayer came and the call to prayer came, they could basically in front of everybody drop whatever they're doing and pray in front of everyone really as a show to say, this is how much prayer is important to me. And it was a way of boasting, showing off in front of others. Also in those days, we know that with fasting, there were actually certain clothes, special clothes, that the Jews would wear when they fasted. Not only that, but often they would not bathe themselves for days when they were fasting. And then on top of that, they would even sometimes put ashes or dirt in their hair or disfigure their face with it. And actually, it initially started as this outward physical expression of the inward grieving and desperation that they were symbolizing through their fasting. But sadly, it eventually became a badge of honor that you could do to show others, look at me, I'm fasting. Now, maybe these blatant acts of self-promotion seem a little bit ridiculous to you. But what I want to say is this. We're fooling ourselves if we think that we ourselves don't struggle with this very real desire to please other people rather than to please God with our acts of righteousness. That temptation is real in every single one of us. Let me just illustrate this in my own life in a couple of ways here. Um, one of the trends that I absolutely dread is these payment terminals that a lot of restaurants and cafes, coffee shops, have started using, these little point-of-service kiosks. And um, after the cashier rings up your transaction, they do that dreaded maneuver where they flip the screen, right? And it faces you now. And what they're asking you is, how much do you want to give in tip for this transaction? And the choices are ridiculous. Do you want to give 25%? or 30% or 800%, you know, that's the way it feels to me. And listen, I, I actually consider myself a pretty generous tipper at a sit-down restaurant. Um, but I just don't get tipping in situations like this. And in my head, I'm thinking, what service was, warranted, was, was, was rendered to me that warrants me tipping you? You just ring this up on the register. I'm getting this as carryout, and I don't get this. Like, am I supposed to tip my grocer, you know, when I go through the register or something? This type of transaction makes no sense to me to tip. Uh, all you did was ring up my order, and I'm supposed to tip you. And there's something so deeply in me that just wants to hit the no tip button. But I swear they train the staff to stare right at you. <laughs> when you're making this decision. And on top of that, these buttons are so huge that everyone standing behind you can see the choice that you're making. And again, I think all of this is intentional. They do this because they know peer pressure works. And the truth is, I may never see this cashier again. 
and these are strangers to me standing behind me. But the truth is, more often than not, I cave in to that social pressure, and I'll give a tip. Because I don't want to look like a cheapskate in front of everyone in that situation. Because I care what other people think of me. Here's the second example. Back in the 90s, when I was actually pastoring a different church, not ICC, I had this Bible that I kept open on my desk in my church office. And I would use that Bible for my daily devotions and for my sermon prep. But around that time, I was actually transitioning out of using a physical Bible to using Bible software. It was just kind of becoming a thing at that time. And so because I was using my computer to look at Bible all the time, I was using my physical Bible less and less to the point where I really didn't use it at all because it was all on the computer. And after months of doing this, uh, a terrifying thought occurred to me because my office was a very high-traffic area at that church. A lot of people were coming in and out of my office because there was actually a table there, and we would have other church meetings in that office space. And so people were around my desk all the time. And I had this dreaded thought that people will see that Bible on my desk and think, Pastor Steve never reads his Bible because it's always kept open on the exact same passage. And to my shame, you know what I began to do? (laughs) I think you could already figure it out. I began to periodically randomly change the pages on that Bible that I never read so that it looked like I was reading that Bible. Because it seemed like a better thing to do than put a sticky note on it that says, I'm using Bible software now. (laughs) And you could ask the obvious question, if you're not using it, why don't you just put it on the shelf? Because you're not using it. And I thought long and hard about that. Why didn't I just put it on the shelf? And the truth is, I think I didn't do that, if I'm really honest, because I thought pastors should have an open Bible on their desk to show their congregants that he reads the Bible. Listen, none of us are immune to this desire to look good in the eyes of others. That's a pressure that every one of us faces. What's so scary to me is that even this, quote, vulnerable sharing about these struggles that I've had can be done out of a desire to look like a humble and vulnerable pastor. (laughs) That's what's really scary to me. Like, aren't you glad that you have a pastor like me? (laughs) (laughs) It's really scary, isn't it? So then here's the question. Is Jesus saying that every public display of righteousness is wrong? That the only acts that God approves of is those that are done secretly, in private. I don't think so. Because Jesus himself preached in the synagogues, and he prayed publicly. In fact, much of his ministry of healing the sick and casting out demons was done right out in public, and in fact became so popular that he began to garner huge crowds that followed him everywhere he went. He did his ministry in plain view of the public. 
So I don't think that that's what Jesus is getting at. In fact, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said these words in chapter 5, verse 14 to 16, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the question is, is Jesus contradicting himself now by prohibiting his disciples from any public acts of righteousness? When just a little earlier he said, let your light shine, that they would glorify God through your good works. Well, no. If you look more closely at the warning that he gives here at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, you see that what Jesus is focusing on is not the act itself, but on the intention behind the act. It comes out a little better in the ESV translation than the NIV that we just read earlier. But if you look at Matthew 6.1 from the ESV, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in, heaven. in other words, what Jesus is saying is that the public nature of these acts isn't incidental. It is central to the motive of doing it. In other words, the whole purpose is so that they will be seen by others. The term used repeatedly throughout this passage is hypocrite. In verse 2, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Now, some of you may know that this word hypocrite is actually borrowed from the Greek theater. It was in reference to these stage actors that would wear masks in order to play different characters in the drama. And Jesus, as far as we know, is the first one to actually take that theatrical term and use it in a moral sense to talk about religiosity. And basically what he was saying was that in the way that many of us practice our religion, we are just like these stage actors wearing a mask, putting on a show. And what Jesus was saying by using this word hypocrite is something really important. Because what he was in essence saying was that what matters to God is not the action in and of itself. It's the heart. It's the intention behind the action. And so the question that he asks everyone who is religious is why do you do the things you do? What is the intention or the motive behind these religious acts that you do? You know, we most commonly think of hypocrisy as one who tries to deceive somebody else. But when you look at the New Testament, you actually realize that there are different forms of hypocrisy described in the New Testament. One type of hypocrisy is basically the disguising of evil as good. Like when a re the religious leaders asked Jesus questions that seemed like they were innocent questions wanting to learn something from him, when the truth is they were simply trying to trap him and catch him. That is a form of hypocrisy. But another type of hypocrisy is when we are blind to our own faults 
And so we end up acting in disturbing ways that are obvious to everyone. This can be in the form of a self-righteousness when you are proud and think that you are better than everybody else. And so you boast and you brag and you look down on others. It can also take the form of judgmentalism when you are trying so desperately to take that speck out of somebody else's eye and you don't see the huge log that is jutting out of your own eye. The Bible calls that a form of hypocrisy. And again, you are blind to that, but everyone else can plainly see it in the daylight, what's really going on with you. But there is a third form of hypocrisy, and that's the form that Jesus is talking about in this particular text. This type of hypocrisy runs so deeply that it ends up fooling just about everybody. The person who receives your good works sees them as genuine, like when you give to the poor, or when they see you praying, or when they see you fasting. And the truth is, as far as anyone can observe, it looks genuine. It looks like the real deal, and so they praise you for it. No one questions the sincerity of what you're doing. But here is the more disturbing part that Jesus highlights, is that even the person themselves is being fooled into thinking that they are doing it for God, when in truth, they are really doing it to be recognized by other people. And you can begin to understand how hard a journey like this is, to wrestle to the depths of your heart to uncover what is the real motive behind which I do the things that I do. Scott McKnight writes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus aims at is the self-deceit that weaves itself into the fabric of a person's spirituality in which there is not only a notice-me approach, but also an inability to know that the problem is present. We have to be careful about passing judgment on the motivations behind what people do, and look beyond the surface. For example, we can see someone dancing during praise and immediately come to the conclusion that they're doing it just to get attention. But they may be sincere in what they're doing. This goes to the deepest secret places of our heart. To develop a before-God-alone approach to piety, we must become more introspective, asking, why am I doing this? And who is watching me? We also need to ask about our pleasures. What is it about this religious deed that brings me pleasure? You know, as McKnight points out, it would be so easy to be dismissive of someone that, in our eyes, acts flashy, like someone who's really getting into worship and dancing so that everyone can see them dancing and moving their body. And we look at that and go, oh, that's attention-seeking behavior. And when we see someone acting more quietly behind the scenes, we can say, oh, that person's humble. But that's too superficial an analysis of the situation. Because that person dancing freely in worship may have a purer heart. While the one that is cleaning up in the sanctuary after the service is done quietly when no one else is there may be secretly judging others or angry that no one is noticing their sacrifice on behalf of the church. These are the hidden, secret places of the heart. 
that Jesus is inviting his disciples to explore. And in essence asking, what motivates your service for me? What is really driving your acts of righteousness? Is it really about me? Or is it about how you look in the eyes of others? You see, the only one who isn't fooled in all this hypocrisy is God. And by his response to it, it's pretty clear that in his eyes, this is not a minor issue. In each of these scenarios of almsgiving and prayer and fasting, what Jesus, in essence, tells these hypocrites is this. Enjoy the applause that people are giving you and the recognition that others are giving to your acts of righteousness. Because he says that each one of those situations, because the truth is, that's all you're going to get as a reward from those acts. Because in essence, what he is saying is, God has nothing for you because your actions have nothing to do with him. And over and over again, he repeats that phrase, they have received their reward in full. In other words, what Jesus is saying is those acts of righteousness are absent of any meaningful relationship with God. God doesn't even factor into your religion in that sense. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy writes, when we want human approval and esteem and do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because by our wish, it does not concern him. What a devastating way to put it, isn't it? It says, God will be a gentleman to you. And when he sees you doing things for the eyes of others and not for him, he'll stand out of the way because your acts of righteousness have nothing to do with him. They don't involve him. In his really amazing essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis talks about two different kinds of reward that exist in life. One he calls a natural reward, and another he refers to as an unnatural reward. Let's take a look at his words as he distinguishes between the two. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. As Lewis points out, there are some rewards that flow naturally out of the act itself. But there are unnatural rewards that intrude in an unhealthy way into that situation and actually make things worse. Imagine, for example, if every time your child told you that they loved you, you gave them $100. What would that do to that parent-child relationship? That would not be a good thing, would it? Because that's an unnatural reward to an expression of love. And I think what Jesus is saying is this. That is the same impact that our hunger for the approval of others has in our relationship with God, in our acts of righteousness. It is an unnatural reward that gets intruded upon our acts of righteousness and has the power to corrupt everything 
that we do with impure motives. Seeking the unnatural reward of recognition from others, it ends up polluting everything, our prayer life, our fasting, our giving and mission work. Everything is tainted by that wrong motivation. Listen, I don't think it's too strong a statement to say that the journey of following Jesus begins or ends on how we answer the singular question, who is your audience? I may be sounding a little dramatic here, but I don't think I'm overstating the point when I say how you answer this question is everything when it comes to following Jesus. Because I think what Jesus is saying is, do you do things for the praise of God or for the recognition of people? And I, I, I use that word, it begins or ends. And I say ends because if you answer this question wrongly, I think what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 6 is, then the journey that you're on isn't even with God. It's a cheap imitation of the real deal, but it's just an imitation of Christianity. This is the first and most important question that a disciple must answer. Does my religion represent a relationship with God? Or is it just a performance intended for the audience of others? Because if you get this one point wrong, as Jesus points out in this passage, it pollutes everything and sets us on a path in life that really has nothing to do with a relationship with God. It's just a hollow imitation of the real thing. Now listen, even as you're hearing this message, I think it's very tempting to react to it like this. Why are you making such a big fuss over this? Like our, our motives, are they ever really that pure anyway? And why does it even matter? Because isn't it what's really important that I gave my hard-earned money to the poor? And that I show up to church every Sunday and I put my money in that offering plate? Like, isn't that what should be really what counts? Why are you obsessing over the motives behind that? And I think what Jesus would answer to that is, no. The motives make all the difference. Because the point is not the act itself. The point is a relationship with God. And apart from that relationship with God, those actions have no meaning. The whole point is that we do things out of our desire and our love for God. Not to stroke our ego or to build our reputation or to be noticed by others. And what I want to say is this. It's scary how immersed we can be in Christian culture and yet care so little what God thinks of us and care so much what others think of us. You can sing songs week after week in the sanctuary and be more enamored by the sound of your own voice 
than by the greatness of God. You can volunteer every month for our pantry and congratulate yourself for being a good person rather than being humble that God is using you to show his love to his other people. What I want to say is this. For too many of us, we are far more preoccupied on a daily basis with what others think of us than what God thinks of us. And I want to argue that that singular problem probably explains why more Christians are stunted in their spiritual growth than just about anything else. I think what could truly unleash dramatic spiritual growth as a disciple of Jesus is to actually fear God more than we fear people. Think about the difference that could make in how you approach your life. To become a disciple of Jesus means that God alone is your audience. He alone is the one to whom you are accountable and for whom you do everything in your life. Now, I know this is a pretty weighty message and it can feel almost overbearing and you can say, um, yeah, I mean, you've cornered me. I'm just like that. What can I do? And I, th I think the truth is, so often we think Jesus' teachings are so obscure and so un unattainable. But I think sometimes we misunderstand them because I think oftentimes he's far more practical than we realize. And I think Jesus gives us the answer out of this pit, right in this teaching. In verse 3 to 4, it says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verses 17 to 18, But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What Jesus is in essence teaching his disciples is the spiritual discipline of secrecy. Secrecy. And the question is, what is a spiritual discipline? Well, as Dallas Willard explains, a spiritual discipline is very, uh, basically an action that is within your power to take right now. You can do it. That will, by doing that spiritual discipline, enable you to do what you cannot do by direct effort right now. A parallel would be like running a marathon. If we all suddenly right now decided to run a marathon and put on our running shoes and started running down Schoenbeck Road, most of us are going to fail after a couple miles. You cannot run a marathon right now. But here's the thing. You can train to run a marathon, can't you? You can enter into disciplines that will actually, a few months down the road, enable you to run a marathon. And I think that's what the spiritual disciplines are all about. By practicing secrecy in your life, you can actually take a heart that is hungering for the approval of others all the time so that you question your motives all the time to a heart that says, for God and God alone. By intentionally doing things that cost you something that no one will ever know about. Richard Foster writes about this discipline of secrecy in his celebration of discipline. Nothing 
disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. That's just human nature. If somebody doesn't know I did it, then what was the point, right? That's what the practice of the discipline of secrecy will teach you about yourself. Is somehow I got to slip it in a sermon illustration or show somehow what a good person I am or what a sacrifice I made. But if I sacrifice to that degree and nobody knows about it, then something deep within us will scream out, I got to tell somebody. And when we begin to practice the discipline of secrecy, we are beginning to train our hearts for the eyes of God and God alone. Because ultimately, I want to train my heart to know that it is to God alone that I want to serve and live so that when my acts do become more public, my heart has already been transformed so that I don't think about what others think about me when I'm doing these acts because all I see is the God that I love before me. Let me just close with this and we'll wrap up. Scott McKnight tells this story that really gripped my attention of some years back when he had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be invited to go to the White House with his wife, Chris, for uh, Easter breakfast with the president. And he shares that experience of going to the White House. And he says, from the moment that you get buzzed into the gate at the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue, he says, you walk through that gate and you forget everything about your previous life. Um, and he says, you are just so totally consumed by that experience of being in the White House. Not on a tour with a bunch of grade schoolers, but to actually have breakfast with the president. Uh, he says, everything just faded to the background. And he writes of that experience. I hadn't thought about our home, my writing projects, students, classes, or the school. I hadn't daydreamed about playing golf or traveling. I realized I had been 100% consumed by our time in the East Room. And as we walked away, Chris and I chatted about what it was like. We could remember in startling detail everything that happened. I use this as an analogy to something far greater. In the presence of God, we should give ourselves in utter devotion to communicate with our Father. Nothing else matters. Amen? I think all of us could relate to what that would have felt like to be in the White House and how absolutely everything would fall to the background in light of that experience. And what McKnight is saying is every time we bow in prayer, something far greater is happening when we stand before the throne of God. And it almost seems absurd if you believe in the reality of the presence of God that there would be even a small hint of us caring what someone else thinks of us. 
I think the real question that Jesus is asking is, how real is God to you? How real is his presence in your acts of righteousness? Because when we really believe God is there, nothing else matters. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let me give you a few moments to respond in your own heart to this word. And I hope the weight of what Christ is saying here will hit all of us because I think the truth is this is a struggle for, I think, all of us. When we do anything, there is this shadow motive that is always waiting in the background, wanting to be acknowledged. And there's always this sense of why do I do the things that I do? And what Christ would say is, if it's not for God, then who is it for? And what was it for? Because the meaning in everything we do, whether it's praying, serving others, fasting, doing mission work, it's not about the act itself, but it's about what that represents in our heart about our relationship with God. So what we ought to be praying for is God, purify my heart. Let me see you as who you truly are, the King of kings, Lord of lords. Because if I really understood who I stood before in all of my acts of righteousness, why would I care even announce what somebody else thinks of me? Or if anyone pats me on the back and says, good job, or thinks that I am somehow a good person. None of that matters in the face of the approval of God himself. Would you just pray for a couple of minutes, whatever you want to privately say to God in this sacred moment. And then after that prayer for uh, just a couple minutes, we're going to come to the table and take communion together. But let's first come to him in a response of prayer.